Before we get to the podcast, I wanted to make sure that you knew that my online knee course with Lenny Macrina is on sale for $200 off this week. If you want to learn exactly how to evaluate and treat the knee, you're going to love our comprehensive course where we cover our clinical examination, exercise progressions, and specific information on ACL, meniscus, patellofemoral, articular cartilage, osteoarthritis, and so much more. Plus, you can earn a ton of CEU credit. The course is on sale this week for $200 off. Head to mikereinold.com slash knee for more information and to sign up today. On this episode of the Sport Physical Therapy Podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Chris Camp. Dr. Camp is an orthopedic surgeon at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and is the medical director and director of high performance for the Minnesota Twins. Dr. Camp's a prolific researcher in the field of baseball injuries with an enormous amount of publications. In this episode, we're going to talk about building a high-performance team in professional baseball and how we can predict and mitigate injury risk, and then some of the trends in injuries that he's seeing in baseball. Welcome to the Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Reinold from MikeReinold.com. Hey, Dr. Camp, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Really appreciate you uh, taking some time out of your, uh, I'm sure, hectic schedule as you're getting ready for the baseball season. But thanks so much for joining us. You got it, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. It's a, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. That's awesome. Um, I, I recently had an episode with Dr. Brandon Erickson, and I had a very similar introduction with him where I said, gosh, we could, we, I don't know how you do this much research in baseball injuries, and we could talk about about a thousand things. But we are super thankful for all you're doing because you really helped us understand baseball injuries so much more with just your your mounds and mounds of research that you guys publish. So thank you for all that you do. Oh, you got it. I love to do it. Obviously, you know, Brandon and I are good friends. We work together on a lot of things, too. And he and I share a similar passion. You know, there's a we've got a lot to figure out um, and we feel like we're just getting started. We're just sort of hitting the tip of the iceberg. So very excited about what we've done so far and even more excited about what lies in the future. That, do you ever look at the research and think to yourself that, wow, like we, we feel like we're advancing ourselves, but the more we dig into it, the more we realize that injury rates just keep going up and up and up and we're, we're ultimately failing, right? <laughs> yeah, no question. And that, that's one of the funny things about research, too, is I always tell folks, if you, if you do a really good job designing a uh, study and you conduct that study, it gives you an answer to a question and then it gives you three more questions. And so right, I like that. I, I feel like. We are learning more, but we're also learning more. We're also learning how much we don't know. The more, the more of this we do, too. So there, there's a lot of uh, job security in it for sure. Yeah, uh, you know, and I, I think you said that really well too. If you even just look at, you know, yourself and others, but you know, the history of some of the data that we're getting from Major League Baseball injuries, we're seeing it progress from like broad strokes, like you know, you know, demographic uh, epidemiology type things, based on you know simple demographics and stuff like that. Um, to now getting more specific. So I, I think you're right. I think over time we are getting more and more out of all this data that hopefully continues to make progress, but we'll see, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you always have to start with the what. So you, you always want to ask what's going on out there? What, what are the injuries? What's really happening? What is impacting players? And, and that's sort of what the, the first phase or wave of the MLB research has done for us. It's kind of tell, told us what's happening. Uh, now the next question we have to start asking is why, right? And and then we have to ask how do we fix it. So th- those are the harder questions that are, that are coming up for us. <laughs> well, you, you, uh, what I'm excited about is that people like yourself are behind these uh, endeavors in the future, because I mean we we've seen this in the past when when all you see is injured baseball players, then sometimes it skews your perspective a little bit. And what I like about yourself now, you're, you know, you're currently the director of high performance, the medical director for the twins, right? So you're not just seeing injured players, you're seeing healthy players and you're seeing players that not only want to prevent injury, but want to enhance performance, right? So, you know, that perspective to me, I think gives you a, a, a better, a better approach to your projects, right? And I think we're starting to see that when, when you start publishing things that, you know, I can see that at least where, where you're coming from. Yeah, that's a great thought, Mike. And I, and I think it's true. I think for all of these problems, the, the solutions are going to lie in bringing together people who have broad perspectives. Each one of us sort of has our own biases and ways of looking at things in our own past experience that shapes and mold us. And because of that, no one person has all of the answers. And, and so I think to figure out these relatively complex things, we've got to bring together people from 
diverse backgrounds, experiences, diverse ways of looking at things, because we, we sort of need to look at these problems from a 360 degree view all, all the way around. And that's the only way we're really going to be able to make any serious headway on it. I like that. And, and it really sounds like that is what you put behind your current role with the twins. Um, and you know, I, 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 I like your title. I thought that was nice too, because most orthopedic surgeons are either team physicians or maybe they're, uh, you know, head surgeon or medical director, but you added director of high performance to that. And I think that speaks volumes about probably what yourself and the organization are thinking about our department. Now it's not just health, but also performance. Um, tell us a little bit about that role that you play with the twins. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think most people are sort of familiar with the team physician role, um, covering games, taking care of injuries as they come up, and also sort of familiar with the medical director role. So trying to make medical decisions about injuries and illnesses across the organization. But the, the high performance role, I, th- I think, is a little bit unique uh, for us. Every, most teams now have some sort of director of sports science or, you know, some, something along those lines. But with this, what we've put together in uh, this role of director of high performance is really something that we have been thinking about for several years, uh, myself and some of the folks in the front office, Derek Fowley, Dad Levine, about how we could really shape the, the entire department. And for us, what we define as the the high performance group is not just folks in the, um, not, not just the physicians, but also our athletic trainers, our physical therapists, strength and conditioning, our dietitians and nutritionists, massage therapists, uh, sleep hygiene folks, mental skills, sports psychology, chiropractor, sort of everybody in, in that group. And, and it's a, it's a big group. It's a diverse group. We all have a different way of looking at things, but ultimately we need to, to try to unify our, our vision. And that's kind of how we see that. In in addition to that, we're also starting to bring in more of the the sports science people, the research and analytics uh, into that same space as well. And I think for any of us to be successful in this area, we have to recognize that no one person has all of the answers. Um, no matter how good you are, how much you've done, or what your experience is, you, you're still very limited. And me as an orthopedic surgeon. I, I could spend the rest of my life, you know, studying and I still wouldn't be nearly as good as our strength and conditioning coaches that have already been doing it for so many years. Right. And so I can't pretend to have domain expertise in that area. Um, even if I think I really like it, I pay a lot of attention to it and I, and I study it extensively. Same thing. You know, I can't even begin to imagine having domain expertise in the, in the world of sports psychology. I, I know a little bit about it. I'm interested in it. I think it's critically important, but I'm not an expert in it. And so really in that role, I, I sort of view myself as kind of a coordinator of experts. And, and that's really how we've tried to shape it um, with, with the Twins organization. So it's, it's not one person who's uh, completely in charge. We're a team of equals. Everybody's sort of on the same page, the same level. Uh, there's sort of minimal hierarchy to it. Everybody has a seat at the table um, and we care about what everybody thinks. And, and I think that taking an approach like that it's definitely difficult at times. Um, it's a little bit counterculture to a lot of organizations and baseball in general. So it, it's definitely different, but I think that it is, it, it's worth doing. It, it certainly comes with some, some nuanced, uh, headaches and, and, uh, problems, but I think that those are all worth having and worth sorting through because if we're ever, if we're ever going to get it, we're going to have to get it together and we're going to have to go collectively as a team. That's awesome. And, and totally refreshing to hear. Um, what, what I like more than anything else is just listening to that from your perspective is to me is this is what makes you a great team physician, right? And, and not every doctor is the best. And just like not any, any profession is, is great, but the understanding the role of a team physician, it's not a dictatorship. It's not an ego trip thing. It's, it's, it is about being there for the players and being there for leadership. Um, I, I just think the way you said that was, was so excellent that, um, I really hope a lot of people get to, uh, you know, experience working with a, a physician like yourself in this environment because that's exactly what we need, right? We're, we're evolving as a game. We're evolving as all these interdisciplinary people like work together. And, and it's an impressive thing that you guys are building with the twins where you put all those people together. It wasn't that long ago that a, a big league medical staff was a head trainer and assistant trainer and one strength coach. And that's it. That was, and I'm talking about like single digit years ago, right? Like that wasn't, that wasn't decades ago, right? And look at how much you guys have built. So 
when you started with the twins, where, what was, what did the department look like and what does it look like now? I know you kind of alluded to like all those different people, but how have you seen that grow? And, and the reason why I asked that is because I think a lot of my listeners are very eager to get into pro sports. And I like how there's so many different avenues now to get there. It's not just, oh, you have to be an athletic trainer. There's, there's 10 different professions that you just list right there that can get in there. But t- tell us a little bit about the evolution of the twins, because I think we're going to start seeing that more and more with other teams. We'll be back after a quick break. I hope you're enjoying the podcast episode. If you want to learn more from me, please check out my website, MikeReinald.com. In addition to all my great articles, videos, and podcast episodes, I have a ton of online CEU courses, as well as my inner circle online mentorship and community. Be sure to subscribe to my free newsletter where I'm always sending you great info and exclusive perks and discounts. Just head to MikeReinald.com to get started. Thanks so much. Yes. So, and that's a great thought. And, and I think our evolution has probably mirrored that of a lot of other organizations in that, you know, let's say five years ago, we had components of strength and conditioning and athletic training, physical therapy, nutrition, a little bit of sports psych and mental wellness. We, we sort of had all of those components, um, some of them more robust than others. And so I, I think that our biggest evolution has, has not necessarily been adding new domains to the team, but actually expanding each of those domains and collectively bringing them together. That's it. So, so we now have, we've always, we, you know, we've had strength and conditioning for a while. We now have more strength and conditioning coaches. <laughs> right. We've also sort of changed the structure and the hierarchy with, within the, the strength and conditioning area and within the physical therapy space and, um, and, and in all of our spaces. Um, to create, to create a system where there's a lot more coordination within that domain and across all of the other domains. That's great. Yeah. So I think our biggest evolution has not just been growing in numbers and size, but more so growing in collaboration and making sure that everybody understands what everybody else is doing, what they're capable of, what their skill sets are, where their shortcomings are, you know, how we can help them make up for those and, and those sorts of things. That, that's been the biggest focus of our evolution over the last several years. That's fantastic. And, and I, I, I like that progression. That's something that um, I've been trying to build with the White Sox myself, too. I mean, we're AL Central competitors here. We shouldn't be giving each other secrets, maybe. But uh, it's uh, <laughs> the, um, uh, you know, the concept of a leadership tree. And I think that's exactly what you just, you know, provided a framework for right there is the same thing, but is that we have a bunch of peers that are all within leadership, right? It's not a dictatorship. It's not like one person type thing. It's about how do we put all our heads together and how do we collaborate and how do we leave a room where we're planning on something, anything, a a strength and conditioning program, a, a prep work program, a rehab program for one player. How do we leave that room in unison? where everybody's had a chance to talk about it. Everybody's had a chance to voice their perspective, which, which often changes the overall program. Um, it's, it's really, really awesome to kind of hear that and see that. And I have a lot of friends that have come through the twins organization that speak really highly of it. So, um, you know, again, kudos to you for, for seeing this and for, you know, emulating this for some of the peers that you've worked with around the league. Um, it, it just sounds like you guys are doing a great job. Good. Well, we're enjoying it. And, you know, we're, we're seeing some, um, some dividends pay off too. So it's been great. We're going to keep at it. It's obviously, it's a lot of hard work. It's anytime you're changing, you know, the culture of, of baseball, uh, with an organization, it can, it can be difficult, but, uh, it has been very good. We've made some tremendous progress. So we're, we're excited about where we're at now and where we're headed in the future. That's awesome. That's awesome. And it, and it helps that you have a great front office and you have a great manager, right? A modern thinking manager. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's, it's support. Right. That's that's what you need in your role is support from everybody, from field staff, from front office, from data analytics. It's it's that's what what's the glue that keeps everything together is that everybody's on the same page. Yeah, 100 percent. And that's a lot of what we're trying to do is, you know, we're breaking down silos, not only within the performance space, but also within the whole organization. So we're very blessed in our organization and that we do. We have a front office that sort of believes in this model. We have a manager that believes in this model. And I think part of our job in the performance space is that we have to reflect the culture of the other areas in the clubhouse. So a player needs to be able to flow freely from the dugout to the clubhouse or locker room 
into the weight room, into the athletic training room with that same sort of feeling, that same sort of culture, that same sort of vibe, that same energy in all of those spaces. You don't want them to all of a sudden come into the athletic training room and think, oh, no, this is where I have to do X, Y, Z, or I got to change my behavior in this space, or I got to act a certain way in this space. No, we, we want the whole thing to sort of have the same, same feel and vibe. And I think it's really critical for our players in order to be comfortable, to understand what we're doing, to buy into the programming that we have. And you can't do that without a supportive coaching staff, front office staff, and players, uh, to be honest. And we're blessed to have all of those things. Sure. And, and great leadership from yourself, too. I mean, to give yourself some, some credit here, it's, it's putting that glue together as well. So um, um, great stuff. Um, one of the biggest roles that these departments play, right, is in risk mitigation, right? Injury prevention, injury prediction, even, um, you know, some people refer to this, you know, 20 years ago, you know, uh, you know, we, we were talking about this as the money ball for, for medical, right? Where we started taking data and trying to, to, you know, predict and prevent injuries. Um, what, what do you think the role of your department is for injury prediction in risk management? Not, not just prevention, but prediction. How have you guys worked towards that? Yeah, that, it's a, that's a great question. And honestly, you know, it's part of the, part of the holy grail. It's, it's complex. It's difficult. But in reality, one of the things I've always talked about is if you look at our research and analytics team, I think it's the same as is true of every organization. They do a phenomenal job of predicting on field performance of players. They right. have a pretty good idea. It's never perfect, but they, with some reasonable accuracy, can predict the number of wins a team will have the predicted war of this player, that player, wins, losses, starts, batting, those sort of things. They, and they do a remarkably good job. It's never perfect, but it's pretty good. And so one of the questions I've been asking myself is, why can't we do the same thing for health and injuries? Right. You know, why, why can't we? And we haven't been that great at it in the past, but I think we can be. I, I, I really do. I, I truly confidently uh, believe that that is the case, and we're going to get there. Um, but it's not easy. And, and I think in, in my mind, there's, there's really probably five major steps that we have to take in order to start talking about risk, uh, our injury risk prediction and mitigation. And I think, number one, we have to first define the problem. Uh, and we've been spending a lot of years doing that, sort of identifying what are the big injuries? What are we actually missing out on? And then second, I think we have to think about once, once we identify the problem, we have to recognize which of those problems we can actually influence. Sure. You know, there are certain injuries that we probably will never, um, line drive, come back or to the pitcher, hit so many, all, you know, all <laughs> right. the fractures. Uh, unfair. You, you can't predict that. You can't control that. You right. Don't waste your time, you know, on that. So, so figure out which, which of the injuries can you actually influence? And then once you do that, the, the third step is sort of identifying all of the factors that contribute to that injury which is difficult. And that, that sort of takes that approach across all of the different domains. Um, and, and I think that's very complex. And very quickly, you start running into a lot of information and a lot of data because you know some of the things that contribute are probably their, their movement patterns, their strength, their diet, their sleep, their workloads, um, their overall performance, their running speed. I mean, all of these sort of things contribute. So you sort of have to figure out all of the factors that contribute. And then once you do that, fourth, you have to figure out which one of those you can intervene on and modify. And I think that has to really be individualized to the player um, because some players, you can modify certain things or intervene on certain things. Other players, they you may not be able to modify that. Or if you do, it lowers their competitive balance and you know it's not something they're willing to do. So you sort of have to identify those factors and actually intervene in it. The fifth and final thing I think that we have to do is that we have to continue to measure our progress and then adjust. So, you know, you, you go through all of these steps and you say, okay, did we actually make a difference here with this, with the injury we identified, the steps that contributed to it, the interventions we interact, we enacted? Now, did it work? What, what's the difference? And if so, great. Now, how can we incorporate this into the normal routine? If not, let's go back to the drawing board, try it again. And, and it's sort of that five-step iterative process that you just have to keep going through over and over and over again um, to infinity, really, to, to try to figure. 
<laughs> and and just when you think you've you've figured something out, you the unexplainable happens. The uh, extra inning game, the the West Coast road trip. Although that's not as exciting for the AL Central as it was for the AL East. <laughs> but there's you know there I don't I I try to tell people this all the time, but some people don't realize this. You know we play I, I, what is it 162 games in 180 days and. I try to explain to people like you wake up, you go to work, you come home, you know, you turn on the twins game. Great. You know, then next day, you know, you wake up, you go to work, you come home, you turn on the twins games. Like, wait a minute. Now they're, now they're in Tampa. How'd they get to Tampa? Like, like, like how, how'd that happen? But like, people don't, people don't appreciate the stresses that go into the body here. And when you have to play every day, like every single day, it's, it's super challenging because the players, if, if they're not performing well, they, they want to practice more. They want to take extra reps in the cage. They want to throw more in the pen. And that's almost like the, that fine balance between workload and capacity that they're dealing with at all times over the year that like we can do as best as we can. And then you just get thrown such a curveball. You can't control everything. It's frustrating. It is extremely frustrating. And we've, we've all seen that too. You know, you, you get the player that, you know, needs some, some rest and you, so you try to work, give them a day off that you in the weight room and you find them just crushing the weights for three <laughs> hours. Like it would have been less work had you played today. You know, this right, was not right. The so, yeah, it, it is tough. And, and also too, the other thing that's hard is that if you look across injuries uh, as the entire professional baseball world, you know, that's about 7,000 or so players. So you have a pretty large denominator to look at injury trends and things. If you look at it within a single team or just within a major league, an active major league roster with 26 or so players, it's a really small sample size. And so having that small sample size makes it difficult to know when I see injuries, you know, ticking up, is this a true trend or is this just random randomness because we have such a small denominator? It, it does make the, the comparisons are pretty fragile. So you right. have to be really careful not to overread um, right. into negative trends or give yourself too much credit if things go well, you know, because <laughs> that's great. <laughs> it, every year, I mean, sometimes you're just a couple of injuries, one to two injuries away from having a terrible injury ridden season versus the best season you've had in years. So it's such a fine balance. And we have to be very objective about how much of that we actually control to the positive and the negative in, in both directions, which I think also makes this more complicated and complex. That absolutely. So in your position and in your research, you've done a lot about um, tracking trends in injuries in baseball. And I can say over my almost 25 year career right now, the, the injuries that I was seeing in the first half of my career are different than the injuries I'm seeing now in my second half of my career. Uh, it's almost like the game's evolved, the the players have evolved, their practice patterns have evolved, and their injuries are uh, evolving with them. And, you know, it's it's funny when, when you see that because you still see some outdated things based on some of the, the information we had 20 years ago. Uh, but I'm curious from your perspective, somebody that's not only on the inside every day with the team, which is an amazing resource for your own knowledge, um, that I'm sure you appreciate, but like, don't ever take for granted that you have the best Petri dish in the world is those 300 baseball players that you take care of. Right. But, um, uh, in your perspective between that and the data collection that you're seeing for major league baseball, what are some of the, the, the trends that you're seeing? Some of the things that are evolving, what are we, what do you think we might start seeing more of? I I'd love to just, you know, you know, I hate to give you such a crazy, vague, open-ended question, yeah. but let's, let's start chatting. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that's a great question. And I think there's a lot of different ways we could take this. And I mean, one of the most interesting, and obviously the most sort of publicized um, injury trends that we see is that of Tommy John injuries or, you know, medial articular ligament injuries. And for years and years, we've just talked about, oh, rates are going up, going up, going up, going up. But I think we're at a spot now where it's a little more complicated than that. And, and actually, if we look within the last few years, what we've seen is we've actually seen a slightly lower frequency in major league players with Tommy John injury, which is great. And there's a tendency to stop and say, hey, we're doing a good job. Let's pat ourselves on the back. We finally <laughs> right. figured this thing out, right? Right. And there's, or... even, there's, been, yeah. and there's <laughs> even been a few articles that have been printed to that effect. But then if we really look at the data, what we see is that 
although major league Tommy John injuries are going down, the minor league injury rates are going sky high. Enormously, enormously. That's yes. one of my favorite graphs that you show that that I've I've used. That Stan let me borrow one of your graphs. I'm sure, yeah. but um, like OMG, we talk about this Tommy John injury epidemic, right? That 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 we have in Major League Baseball, and it's nothing compared to the lower levels, minor league baseball, and heck, I, I from my perspective, what I see in my practice, college and high school, it's the same thing. They're going crazy. So it's funny you said that that. You know, yeah. we we're pat ourselves on the back for a hot second there about major league, but it's just that they're happening earlier, perhaps. Yes, exactly. And, that, and that's what's happened. So they're getting shifted to younger ages, whether that's minor league college and now even starting to be in high school. And what I worry about with that is that as those the rates of primary Tommy John surgeries and first time Tommy John injuries starts to shift down to the younger players. Right. If in response to that on the back end with the major right. league players, we're going to start to see an uptick in the number of secondary Tommy John right. injuries or revision Tommy John surgery. Sure. So I think we're already starting to see that now where, right. where yeah, the number of primary surgeries is probably down in the major leagues, but the number of revisions are ticking up. And that's because now guys are not having their first Tommy John as a major leaguer. They're having it as a minor leaguer or a college or even a high school athlete. Yeah. Wow. And then it becoming revision time by the time. They <laughs> so I, I think that is something that we're probably going to see. Then that opens up a whole nother can of worms. Is, <laughs> sure. All right. How do we, how do we handle these revision cases, which we know are a little bit tougher and harder to rehab and less predictable. And so I think this problem is going to get harder before it gets easier. And I remember too, we used to say that a Tommy John lasts like 10 years, right? And we were doing him in 32 year olds, right? That, that was, that was 20 years ago. And we'd say like, nah, this will, this will last longer than your career. Then we started saying, okay, maybe they last like seven to eight years. And now we're like, okay, maybe they last like five years, <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah. it's like, they're even trending that way. But you know, I think we're at a really great spot though, for this to occur because we have some options now, right? We have the new internal brace with the repair. Um, even some hybrid techniques. I know you and I have, we've shared patients that have had a revision with with the internal brace that are still doing outstanding several years later. So um, where do you see that evolving? Where do you see that coming into play? Yeah, and, and I think that this is an area that is right uh, for for some advancement. You know, if you, if you think about the most common surgical techniques for Tommy John surgery are the uh, figure of eight or the modified Job technique and the docking technique. And both of those were described in the early 2000s, 2001, 2002. So almost 20 years and not mm -hmm. a ton has changed. Right. And there's hardly anything in orthopedic surgery that we're doing the same now that we were doing. It's <laughs> a good but, point. <laughs> but this, that has been the case for that surgery. And that's, and it's not from a lack of trying. People have tried. There's all sorts of different techniques that have been described out there that just didn't quite pan out. Nobody's really been able to figure, figure out what the next level is. Right. And then in recent years, we've introduced the concept of the internal brace, um, which has been really helpful, particularly for milder injuries that are suitable for just a repair. So that's when we repair the native ligament back down and we don't add a new ligament. Um, and adding the internal brace to that adds some biomechanical strength, makes it a little bit stronger, and then seems to allow those repairs to do well. The repair, when we re were doing just repairs without the internal brace, they didn't do so well. But then we added the internal brace, which gave a little bit more biomechanical strength. Those seem to be, that seems to be a pretty reasonable surgery um, for people who are candidates. And a little faster return to play times. We don't know the long-term outcomes in terms of longevity yet. But overall, it's looking pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is not everybody's a candidate for, for the repair. You know, guys right. that have massive tears, chronic attenuation, tears at multiple sides of the ligament, which to be honest, by the time they're getting up in the minor league, major league type level, that's usually what these look like. You know, yeah, they, they happens, look like yeah. pretty, pretty beat up, low quality ligaments. So I do still think there's room and need for some innovation in the reconstruction space, which is reconstruction, which is what we think of as traditional Tommy John when you're actually adding a ligament in, that, that we do need to evolve there. And I think that adding the internal brace to those reconstructions is what a few of us are starting to do now, and we're seeing some promising results. That's great. Um, and, and I think that, that that is sort of the current status of things. People are finding that, yes, if there's a way to reliably add an internal brace to a reconstruction, that seems to help. 
years. Yep. What I think, though, is going to be the next big breakthrough and some of the things that we're working on is improving the biomechanical strength with addition of an internal brace. But what we really need to think about is also improving the biology of the construct and the surgical technique to improve the healing rate. And it gets really complicated really quickly. But I think that in order to have something that's successful, that allows for a quick return to play time, number one, and number two is robust for the long haul, we need to marry both the biomechanical strength and the biological activity. And if we can find the way or find the, the reconstruction technique that best optimizes both biomechanical strength and the biology for healing, that's when we're really going to be able to make some, some inroads in improving these return to play uh, times and lowering revision rates. Um, and there's several of us that are working on that. We, we have some, uh, I've been doing a, a newer technique now for the last three years, um, which, which does that. And I'm really excited about it. We're going to be publishing that data. Uh, this year. So I, I think that there's there's a lot of exciting things coming down the pike for uh, for UCL reconstruction that I think could be some potential game changers for us. That's great. That's great. And and I do think we're, we're probably going to have to take a step back from our perspective, from the rehab perspective too, and reanalyze a little bit of our, our rehab procedures as we start to transition to the hybrid. Um, you know, but my limited experience with these hybrid reconstructions are, you know, they're, they're a little tighter. Um, mm -hmm. they, they feel tighter with range of motion. We don't want them to lose motion. And, and they almost have this, um, you know, this, this, this tightness period in the throwing program that so far is resolved and every, you know, people are doing great, but it's different. Right. And, you know, I've, I've seen so many of these that I know what to expect. So when somebody's like, oh, I just feels like tight and they point like almost to like, like the proximal end of their ligament, you're like, oh, ah, we'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll ignore that. Right. right. <laughs> but, but, you know, for us, we're, I think we're going to have to start. I think we have to do the same thing. We have to evolve our thoughts and our techniques as, as we see new, new surgical improvements from yourself. So, um, that's, that, that's awesome. Um, what else, what else besides, uh, elbow, what else are you seeing? You know, one of the things that I think is interesting and it, we're going to find as a big contributor to, um, injury risk and trends is that we are starting to measure more things that players can follow. Mm. So let me explain that. So obviously pitch velocity has been measured forever and has always been a metric of success for baseball players, whether you're little league, high school, college pro. It's something easy to look at. You know it translates to success and everybody is sort of obsessed with pitch velocity. And that has probably um, driven some of the entry trends that we've seen. Now we're starting to do some similar things in other areas uh, of the sport. So now any high school player or college player has access to, to different labs and uh, facilities they can go into and they can get their exit velocity for a hitter or they can get their sprint speed and, and I think, and they can get spin rates. And, and so I think these metrics are incredibly helpful for us in improving performance and predicting performance, but they're also going to start to give us values that players, coaches, and other, and parents will chase. And sure. if they start to chase those things, similar to how they've chased pitch velocity, I think that that will probably be driving some injuries uh, for some athletes. <laughs> so I think that, and, and some of this will be other soft tissue injuries that we see in hitters, some shoulder injuries. We know, you know, there's a lot of force in the shoulder during the swing, a lot of rotate, rotational components to this. So oblique type injuries, hip injuries, low back injuries. So yep. I think we're going to see all of those start to evolve as we start to give hitters numbers that they can chase, just like <laughs> have been sure. chasing velocity uh, yeah. for many years. And, and I, I, I couldn't agree more. I would say the last two, three years, I've seen an uptick again of, of you know, what we call batter shoulder. But it's, you know, you, you know there's, I guess, uh, numerous ways you could define that. But it's, um, you know, that that posterior instability of of the shoulder and and, you know, at, at, you know, in my head, I'm trying to figure out, OK, why, why is this ticking up a little bit? And we, we do see it in aggressive fielders. Right. So like middle infielders, center field, you know, that probably have a history of diving and subluxations and stuff like that. Um, but then you look at all of these kids like you just come to my facility any evening at 5 p.m. And look at all the kids then in the winter that are just working on max intent exit velocity and launch angle and just like grinding, grinding, grinding. 
uh, you know, on top of, of, of fielding and, and it's, it's interesting to see. So, um, have you noticed that at your level? I, I have started seeing it in our pro guys too. Um, but how, how much of this batter shoulder are you seeing is, is this just in my hands? Is this a new England thing? Or are you guys seeing that too? No, we're, we're seeing it. And honestly, it's, it's sort of following similar trends to the Tommy John, uh, you know, we're, we're starting, we, we've always known about it in high level hitters and professional hitters, but I'm, I'm seeing it in right. college hitters. And I'm seeing it in high school hitters. I'm even seeing it in some youth. I've, I've had some 12, 13, 14 year old uh, kids enter their shoulders while batting. And so it's, it's starting to to trickle up and we're starting to see more of it. Absolutely. That's, that's, I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, we, we always talk about pitching injuries, right? And I feel like the position players don't get enough, but, um, you know, I, I'm definitely seeing batter shoulders. Uh, uh, what, what else in position players, you know, I, I know the data shows, you know, hamstrings, obliques, huge. Um, are you seeing any trends in that? Are we getting better at hamstrings yet? Yeah, I think so. It's starting to look like it. So we're actually looking up the MLB data again uh, just to see how it's going. But it, it seems like we're starting to do that, you know, especially at the, at the higher levels and the, and the major league levels. Interestingly enough, if you if you look back at some of the older data, the, the most common uh, position for hamstring injury was pitcher. And the most common mechanism was spreading to first base. And so <laughs> got to wonder, you know, going to universal DH may help that, honestly. Yeah. Um, so that that may, you know, cause our hamstring numbers to go down. But I think people are getting tuned into it, whether it's doing different um, eccentrics or Nordic hamstring exercises or more sprinting, timing, uh, timing gauge, jumping, those type of things. People are getting clued into it. And honestly, I think the hamstring is sort of a great success story of what epidemiologic research can do for you. You identify, right. hey, this is a common problem. In fact, it's the number one problem. Right. Um, and it's not catastrophic. They're usually not season ending, but still, I mean, these guys are missing three to four weeks on average for these types of injuries. And there's a lot of them. Let's see if we can fix it. And then right. there are actual interventions you can take to try to improve hamstring plasticity and strength and explosiveness. And, and, I, and I think it actually is making a difference. So I think that's one of the success stories uh, that, that we're having. And now I think we're going to see the same thing in other areas. You know, we know that oblique injuries, core abdominal abdominal muscle injury so sort of the sports hernia the adductor the rectus that whole area um we're, we're seeing that very commonly so i think those are probably going to be the next area that we're going to really have to try to intervene on and, and reduce injury numbers for and call me crazy same thing as batter shoulders it's it's probably because of the increased volume and intensity yes. of swinging that you know we're getting these sport hernia type like situations in low back and spondies i mean we're we're you know, we're seeing that the kids with the stress reactions, it's, it's crazy how much we're seeing these things nowadays. So, um, you know, uh, super interesting. Um, all right. Random question about this then. So hamstrings, obviously we're seeing ticking up a little bit. You still take hamstring graft for Tommy John's or, or have you started mm -hmm. to, you know, is that, do you, do you care? Is that, is that something that crops your mind? Do you try to go Palmaris more? Or does that yeah. impact your decision at all? That's a, that's a great question. I do my go-to graft. So I, I definitely prefer auto graft over allograft for, for UCL surgery. So always, 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 if possible, use the patient's own graft uh, just because there's better handling properties, more biologically active, um, improved healing, all of those sort of things. So for me, the Palmaris is still the go-to graft. And the vast majority of players have a Palmaris. Um, for that 10 to 15% that don't, then I will go to hamstring. And typically the gracilis, which is the smallest of the hamstring tendons. There's some debate whether or not you should use the landing leg or push leg, and we've tried to study it. Don't really, <laughs> you know, have have a great answer. I tend to use the landing leg rather than the push up leg, but um, we don't have any good data to support that. So, Palmaris <laughs> is still a graft of choice for 90%, uh, but then ham, hamstring for the rest. The thing that's interesting though is that oftentimes players are now coming in with a very strong bias to what they want. Interesting. So they may say, wait, I know you did this guy's surgery and used a hamstring and he's throwing a hundred. I want to use my hamstring. <laughs> and then you got to sort of say, all right, let's back this up a little bit. Let's unpack and talk about that. Um, but in reality, if they have such a strong bias, you know, towards something, it can be often hard to overcome. So I am finding that more so than ever in the past, players actually have a bias towards what they want to use, which is important. You know, you want to inform them. Ultimately, it's their body. Those we we got to um, do, do what they want, uh, but try to give them all the information they need to make those decisions. That's funny. 
Uh, you, you know, we did the same thing with hamstrings in, in kind of our subset of people. And I would say with the pitchers, I, I feel like we get as much, you know, lead leg as trail leg hamstring injuries, to be honest. And, you know, that kind of, that, that impressed me a little bit too. I thought there would be more of a pattern, but it, it, it seems like they injure them both fairly frequently. Um, and I wonder again, if the next evolution in baseball pitching hamstrings here is, you know, all the biomechanical people, the pitching coaches, everybody's talking about lead leg block. Everybody's talking about this and you know, I, I, for, for us from the medical side, we we know what lead lead leg block is and how it's a biomechanical conclusion almost, right? But we we literally now have kids like jamming their knee into hyperextension, trying to <laughs> trying to work on lead leg block instead of just getting their force of momentum over their front side. But um, I, I wonder if that's going to be you know one of those next things with, with the pitchers is hamstrings on, the, on their front side from just worrying too much about the wrong things. Yeah, I think I think it's a great point. And, and you bring up a, a, an interesting concept here, Mike. And I think, you know, we've seen how obsessed people have come become with velocity because it's a great predictor of performance or it correlates with performance. And I've always wondered, is there a way we can do the same thing for sound mechanics? So right. can we have some sort of numerical score or um ability to grade or judge sound mechanics that will reduce injury risk? And is there a way that we can make that measurable and appealing to right. our young athletes you know is there, is there a way we can start getting them to they're always going to chase velocity we can't prevent that and that's okay but can we also find some ways to get them to become obsessed with and start chasing sound mechanics good strength and you know good injury prevention principles that's right. hard you know it's like teaching <laughs> vegetables they don't want to do it we've got to you got to find a way to make it appealing but i think that that is something that we need to be doing as a as a um, professional group. Yeah. And and it's funny though, you, you brought up the the perceptions here and I was just looking at this in a slide, but a study from Cross last year in, in 2022 that talked about weighted balls and um, uh, what was it? Uh, 86% of, of people responding thought that weighted balls would increase their velocity and 85% of them thought they would increase their injury risk. Mm-hmm. But they they did it anyway, <laughs> right? And, and we we have to recognize that as medical providers, you know, we, we tend to be very um, injury risk averse, right? More so than our players are, and right. that's okay because we're offering a unique perspective that they don't have. But we also have to recognize that if we just say, "Hey, do you know these things are going to increase? You know, such and such is going to increase your risk of injury," they'll probably say, "Yeah, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway." Right, and right. So we we have to be prepared to understand that, have that conversation, and, and meet them in the middle, and also recognize that, you know, some accept we all have to accept some risk of injury, or we wouldn't be playing sports at all. Right. And so we just have to sort of work through what our threshold is for injury risk, and 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 kind of marry that to the injury risk threshold of the player, and right. try to get on the same page and help them, and know that you know it's never going to be exactly what we want. And is there maybe never fully what they want either, but we got to try to work together to find that, that happy medium that gives them the balance of optimal performance and minimal injury risk. Yeah. And I think I struggled with that a little bit earlier in my career where, you know, that I think that would bother me a little bit more, but man, I, I'm so much more humble about that whole experience with the players now where it was like, look, I, I'm just here to educate you. And then you hired me to help you. Right. That's how I kind of think of you, even though we're medical, right? You, I, I'm here to help you. I, I'm going to also advise you, but I'm also going to help you. Right. And that's the whole goal. And, and even within baseball, sometimes sports science gets that, that, you know, bad rap sometimes. Um, but it's, it's about maximizing your play between those white lines and not limiting it. Right. We're not trying to limit you. We're trying to get you as prepared as we can and get your capacity as high as we can. Um, and I think as a medical community, we have to embrace that more so that way we get better buy-in from, from everybody. Right. And, um, heck I, I've definitely, I'm, I'm probably labeled on Twitter as like a anti-weighted ball kind of guy. And I'm not my, all my athletes like use weighted balls to an extent, but we do it as, uh, intelligently as we can. Um, you know, just because our data showed some negativity doesn't mean that there isn't a way we can apply it. We just have to dose it correctly. And. That's just a concept that most people don't grasp. Yeah, and, and it's true. And, and our tolerance for risk as medical providers is relatively low. But we have to recognize that for some of our players, you know, you, you've got a, a 38-year-old veteran who's still wanting to play and is struggling. And they're saying, listen, if I don't pick up three miles an hour 
I've got to retire. So, and I say, right. I might say, yeah. hey, this is really high risk for you. And they may say, if I don't do it, I'm done. You know, my chance of playing are 0% if I don't do right. it. So right. you're telling me he has a high risk of injury, but it's the only way I can keep my career going. Okay. We have to understand that and be okay yeah. with that. All right. We're going to do it. Let's talk about how we can do it the right way and the smart way and try to right. get you better without getting you hurt. So we, that, we, that, that is often very difficult for us to do, but ultimately we have to recognize we're here for them. We're not here for ourselves. We're, right. we're here for them. And so we have to know what their goals are. That's, that's awesome. That's a great way of thinking of it. And yeah, we could, we could talk for hours. This is amazing. Um, I know you got to get, uh, probably to reconstructing some UCLs this afternoon at some point. So, yeah. um, uh, we, we could keep going for hours. Uh, before I let you go though, uh, we'd like to end with a quick high five where five quick questions, five quick answers. Um, I, I love hearing this, especially from such well-established people like yourself, just to show everybody that you still have a growth mindset and all this great stuff. But um, mm-hmm. five quick questions. First one is, what are you currently working on for your own professional development? Like your, your what are you reading? What are you learning for oh, yeah. yourself? Yeah. Great question. Yeah. So for me, actually, every Jan- I have a list of January books that I reread every January. So I'm, I'm a big nice. reader, right? And right now on that list, I'm, I'm going back through Marcus Aurelius's uh, Meditations. One of my favorite. I think I've read it four or five times, but I reread nice. it every January. It's a... Uh, a lot of wisdom. Every time I reread it, I pick up new new things. Is so that is that? Patient. I'd highly recommend it. I was going to say, is that is that your is that your number one book recommendation for somebody that's 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 trying to work on self improvement? No, that wouldn't be my number one. Um, that that one is usually it, it's better sort of once you're uh, partially down the trail and <laughs> sort of already done a little soul search, you have a little bit of an idea because um, it takes a little bit to to put that one into practical use. Um, but in terms of like best book recommendations, a couple, you know, you mentioned a growth mindset. I'm, I'm a huge Carol Dweck fan, uh, growth mindset. Uh, I think Atomic Habits uh, is, is a fantastic one for developing systems and processes. Uh, Grit, fantastic. Uh, Peak, another by Anders Ericsson. All of those are good. I think it is sort of establishing yourself on a pathway towards expert performance. That's awesome. Great stuff. Uh, what's one thing that you've recently changed your mind about? Yeah, I'd, I'd say um, I've always historically been a very, very much a goal oriented person, um, but I've actually sort of abandoned that in recent years. Uh, and I really think that systems and processes trump goals um, every love time, it. every I time. Love it. So I, I have uh, essentially eliminated almost all goals. Uh, from my life, and I've worked to develop systems and processes that are going to help me get to the place I want to be and be the person I want to be. So, uh, systems and processes over goals every every day of the week for me. That's awesome, and I'm maniacal about that as well. You can ask everybody I work with, right? We have so many uh, uh, standard operating procedures for everything written up. Uh, once it starts blending into your personal life though, and you have a system for like making coffee in the morning, that's when, when your wife starts to get, uh, agitated with you, but, <laughs> but, that's uh, true, yeah. but <laughs> yeah, my, I, my I, wife I, can definitely, uh, can definitely share that frustration. Yeah. It's, once you, once you start thinking systems, you can't think anything else, right? You even, you go to a restaurant and you're like the, the, all the systems are all broken here. I can't, yeah, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> this is how they should be doing this. Yeah. This, this yeah. yeah. That's what, that's why you're a leader. Um, all right. Next question. What, what's your favorite piece of advice that you give residents? Yeah. So my, my key, I, I try to make it as simple as possible. And I tell them always stay humble, hungry. Those are the two. If you, if you needed two adjectives to describe yourself, humble and hungry. And I think that's true of any young professional or older professional uh, in the world. If, if you're humble, you're a person who's got an open mind. You're responsive to criticism. You've got a growth mindset. You're going to be a better team player. People are going to enjoy being around you and your ceiling is much higher. And obviously, if you're hungry, you're going to you're going to have the energy. You're going to be motivated. You're going to do the things you need to do. You're going to be doing You're going to do the stuff that others are not willing to do. You're going to do the hard work. You're going to have the high tolerance for boredom. And I, and I think that's something for younger people to think about, especially if you're trying to get into baseball. Oftentimes you think you're going to come in and it's going to be glitzy and, and, and it's going to be a lot of glamour. And in reality, it's not. And, and nothing in life is. And, and I think it's the people who have the high tolerance for boredom are the ones that can be extremely successful. So can you keep doing the right things every single day, day in, day out, over and over and over and over and over again and stick with it? Um, those are the people that are going to be successful. And I, I think that, so staying hungry, humble, uh, would be my two pieces of advice for any, any young professional or 
somebody that's been at it for a while and needs to freshen things up a little bit. <laughs> I, li- I like it. And then follow up with that meditation book. And I think you're, you're in a good spot right there. For exactly. That person. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. What's coming up next for you? Yeah. So spring training's right around the corner. So always excited about that. Um, so we got that coming up and then also a couple new things in the, in the research world that I'm pretty excited about. We're, we're going to start, you know, people have seen uh, marker-based motion capture of the pitching motion. Uh, we're starting some studies doing it for the baseball swing. We, t- we talked nice. about it earlier with the obsession with exit velocity and things. So we need to figure out more about the, the forces that are happening throughout the body through the swing. So got that coming up. And then another thing that I'm really interested in, and we're starting to, to use in some of our research is using different machine learning and artificial intelligence approaches to try to sort out some of these issues around risk prediction, uh, risk mitigation for injuries and those types of things. So those are a few of the things coming up that I'm, I'm really excited about. That's awesome. I, I'm really looking forward to learning from that from you. So awesome. Um, where can people learn more about you? Obviously go to PubMed and type in your name and, and th- that'll give you a, a few months of reading, but, uh, where, where else is, is there a place that they can find you if, if they want to send a patient to you or anything, where, where can people find more about you online? Yeah, a couple spots. Um, so yeah, all, all research is on, uh, PubMed, uh, our website is, uh, sportsmedicine.mayoclinic.org. So if you want to just go to the Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine, uh, Google that, you'll find it. That sort of tells you all about our clinic and how to get patients in and what we have to offer, those sort of things. You go and do that. And I'm also moderately active on Twitter, trying to share baseball injury research and surgical techniques and things like that. So at Chris Camp MD uh, is the Twitter handle. So either of those spots will work. Yeah. And I will say you are a great Twitter follow because um, you're always posting really good stuff and you're active, right? And it's, it's um, you know, I, I think sometimes people uh, don't uh, appreciate that enough, right? To, to be able to interact with somebody like yourself on Twitter is is priceless. So, uh, so take advantage and follow them and, and ask questions. And um, it's, it's a great experience. So, um, well, thank you so much, Dr. Camp. That was amazing. Um, good luck this season. I, I hope, hope to, to see you uh, at some point during the year, but thanks so much for coming on the show and giving so much of your perspective. That was amazing. You got it, Mike. Really appreciate it. I, I enjoyed it as always. Enjoy listening to your podcast. So it's an honor to be a part of it. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please share this with your friends to help spread the word. It would really mean so much to me. Please check out all my online courses, articles, newsletter, and more at MikeRano.com. There's always a ton of great perks for my newsletter subscribers. And also be sure to search for my other podcast, The Ask Mike Reinald Show, where my team of physical therapists, strength coaches, and I answer your questions. See you on the next episode.